Welcome to The Essential Rhythm, science-based natural history and human ecology of the North Atlantic seashore. This is episode 71, DNA barcoding. When I say the word barcode, you probably think of a grocery store and all those little boxes of lines on the bottom of all the food you purchase. The lines represent numbers, and each product is issued a unique number that allows for identification and tracking. The number represented by the barcode actually contains three pieces of information. The country where the code was issued, the manufacturer of the product, and the identity of the product itself. Barcodes are used instead of just a string of numbers because lines are easier to read, especially if you're trying to read them with a laser. The scanner laser bounces off the barcode differently depending on whether the section is black or white, and a sensor in the scanner records the alternations between these two different pulses and transmits that information to a computer that decodes the pulses and turns them back into numbers that can be then compared to a database of store inventory. You're probably less familiar with the kind of barcoding we can do in biology. This is a technique developed in the early 2000s that enables scientists to identify an unknown biological specimen using short sequences of its DNA, like a barcode. While there are no anatomical areas of organisms where there are white and black lines that can be read with a laser, in every cell of an organism's body, there are DNA molecules that hold a tremendous amount of coded information. And now we have the technology that allows us to access and read them. Doing this is an excellent entry point for the world of molecular biology, and thus it's an activity I do with my first-year biology students each fall. To identify an organism from its DNA, you have to get the DNA out of the nucleus. And yes, that is if we are barcoding a eukaryotic organism, stuff like plants, animals, and fungi. Bacteria, as many of you know, don't have nuclei. To do this, we take a little bit of tissue from an organism, mush it up really well, and soak it in some enzymes and buffered solutions. This does something called lyse the cell. Break open the membranes of the cell and the nucleus and let the DNA free. Then we take that solution that we now hope has a bunch of DNA floating around in it and essentially rinse and strain the DNA out of it. At the end of this process, we're left with a teeny tiny amount of solution with an even teenier amount of DNA in it. When we use the DNA to identify a specimen to the species level, we don't actually have to read all of its genes. We can just use a certain section of the genome, and the section we read is fairly standardized, depending on which kind of organism it is that you're looking at. With my students, we barcode invertebrate animals from the intertidal zone, and the section of DNA we use is called the CO1 gene. CO1 stands for cytochrome oxidase subunit 1, which sounds terrible, but what it means is the gene that codes for protein in the mitochondria of a cell that's involved in cellular respiration, basically getting energy out of food. This gene is especially well-suited for barcoding animals because it differs just enough between different species, even closely related ones, to be able to tell them apart. Unsurprisingly, molecules are hard to read. So to actually read the CO1 gene, we have to make lots and lots and lots of copies of it in a process called polymerase chain reaction, otherwise known as PCR. You've all been hearing about and using this term for the past two and a half years. This is the same PCR as a COVID PCR test. Just like with DNA barcoding, to determine if there's COVID virus and what kind of COVID virus is on the swab you stick up your nose, public health scientists have to make lots of copies of it before they analyze it, just due to the resolution of the machine that it's used to read the genetic code. 
In the case of DNA barcoding, we don't use PCR to make copies of the whole genome of the organism. That would be all of the DNA that came out of the cell. We just make copies of the CO1 gene. To do that, we take our extracted DNA sample and we add to it the raw ingredients of DNA, things like adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine, the A's, T's, G's, and C's of the DNA code, as well as the enzymes that build new DNA molecules from old ones, and little bits of DNA called primers that act as locator beacons. They find the CO1 gene on the DNA molecule and tell the enzyme where to start copying. And then we cook it, literally. The PCR process is heat mediated. We heat the mixture, then cool it off over and over and over again. And at each different temperature step, a different part of the copying process occurs. I do all of the steps outlined thus far with my students over a series of weekly lab meetings. Once the PCR is done, so are we. To actually read the sequences of CO1 genes from our organisms, we have to send our samples to a lab, in New Jersey in this case, where they have the equipment and the personnel to decipher the code that's embedded in that gene. What we get back from the lab are a bunch of computer files that then we have to clean up and curate and then compare to databases to see if our sequences match with anything there. And if so, we've likely identified our organism. My students are just at the database stage of this and are excited to learn the identities of the organisms they've collected. I'll be sharing those with you in the coming weeks. This has been episode 71 of The Essential Rhythm, written and produced by me, Sarah O'Malley. The show is produced on Wabanaki land. The theme music is Lightstream by the artist Siddhartha, used by permission through Creative Commons. Thanks for listening and join us next week.